Top three New Year's resolutions probably every year. Exercise more, eat healthier, lose weight. The Apostle Paul had what we can call a new man resolution. He resolved he would take pleasures in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses. That'd be a real downer at your New Year's party, right? What are you, you going to resolve? Uh, the, every, after everybody decides resolutions are stupid, then they make them anyway. Paul, what are you resolving? Uh, to take pleasure in my infirmities and in my reproaches? Okay, Paul, we get it. And among these things would be a thorn in the flesh called the messenger of Satan to buffet him. Now, we have likewise been promised by Jesus that in the world we should expect and have tribulation. Not the great tribulation, but tribulation, trouble. Paul did not resign himself to his suffering as if he was burdened by it. He took pleasure in his sufferings. That's a word that's better translated to think well of them or to approve them or to be willing. And so that was his attitude when he had these things. Infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions, distresses, you have them. Are you boasting about them? Do you have a thorn in your flesh? If so, do you believe that the power of Christ rests upon you? Do you want in 2023 to grow spiritually, to be a stronger Christian? God is then going to design a custom lesson plan to teach you that it is when you are weak that you are strong. Charles Spurgeon wrote, I am certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have upon the bed of pain. Now, in our remaining time, we're going to go through the text to reveal Jesus and thereby understand more about the pleasure and boasting made possible by grace. The title of today's message, The Thorn Ultimatum. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we approach uh, approach your word, we do so humbly, Lord. We know that you are here in this place because you promised you would inhabit the church and uh, indwell Christians. And so, Lord, with that, we ask that your spirit teach us uh, what, these, uh, what this text is about in context, but also in the context of our own life as Christians and as the church. We thank you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Asthma, scarlet fever, rheumatic fever, sinusitis, heart palpitations, nervous trouble, bone and joint deformity, color blindness, scoliosis, high blood pressure, diabetes, Anemia, partial deafness, astigmatism, fatigue. Those were the boxes that were checked on Steve Rogers' World War II draft card. He made five attempts to enlist in the army. During the fifth, he was noticed by Dr. Abraham Erkson, who had the authority to approve him. This five foot four, chronically ill, 95 pound weakling was exactly the man that Dr. Erskine was looking for. The rest is comic book gold. The scientists supplied Steve with super soldier serum. He transformed into Captain America. He was bigger, stronger, and faster. He was physically enhanced. When someone becomes a Christian and receives the super spirit, are they physically enhanced? Well, of course not. If, however, you stop and think about it, we often act as if a Christian ought to be a physically enhanced person. We identify as spirituals those who are presentable, healthy, talented, educated, and successful in the world. It is natural for us to look upon and judge the outward man rather than 
try and ask the Lord about the inward man. Once upon a time, the nation of Israel demanded a king. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice, handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Israel's man of the year, the sexiest man alive, tall Saul, became a miserable failure as king. He would not obey the Lord. The Lord sent the prophet Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint his choice for king. He was ready to repeat the mistake and choose Jesse's eldest son. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That man after God's own heart was really just a boy, David, who was out tending sheep, the least in his family and the least thought of in his family. We find out later that his brothers didn't really like him very much, but he was a good choice for Israel's king. William Carey's biographer said that, and I quote, he was born in a forgotten village in the dullest period of the dullest century. His family was poverty poor. He did not go to school beyond the age of 12. A skin affliction made him so sensitive to outdoor work that he became a cobbler's apprentice. So he was always cobbling. Attracted to the ministry, Carey was rejected when he gave his first sermon as a candidate. It took more than two years for him to finally be ordained. 1787, he suggested that Christians had a duty to share the gospel around the world. His enthusiasm was met with this answer, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid. Undeterred, he founded the Baptist Missionary Society five years later. One year after that, he was sent to India. They were repeated attacks of malaria and cholera. Carey and his wife, Dorothy, lost three children on the mission field. Dorothy lost her sanity, unable to cope with the strain of living at a subsistence level in India. A fire in 1812 at the mission printing plant destroyed years of Carey's translation work. On top of all that, there were no conversions for seven years. What modern mission board would not feel it their obligation to recall Carey as a failure and try to get him PS, uh, PTSD counseling? I mean, this guy was going through it. However, over time, he eventually formed a team who translated the Bible into 34 Asian languages. He established 19 mission stations. He formed 100 rural schools encouraging the education of girls and he fought against the custom of sati. Anybody know what sati is? Some of you history people. Sati is the custom of when a husband died, her wife, his wife sat on top of the funeral pyre and burned herself to death. It was a very popular way for widows to follow their husbands into the afterlife. Uh, it was the Hindu practice that he fought against, and ultimately it was banned in 1829. A.B. Simpson writes, God is not looking for extraordinary characters as his instruments, but he is looking for humble instruments through whom he can be honored through the ages. So verse 1, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Uh, Paul is writing this letter to the uh, church at Corinth. Man, did they have problems. Uh, you know, 
all the New Testament churches, you know, needed correction, but none like Corinth. I mean, they were really out there, and they were boasting about how spiritual they were. Uh, and so that's why Paul jumps in here in chapter 12, and he says, it's still not profitable to me for boast, but let me, let me talk to you about visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul saw Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus the day he was saved. He had a vision when he was called to minister to the Gentiles. It was by a vision that he was sent to Macedonia to bring the gospel there. When things got tough in Corinth, he was encouraged by a vision. After his arrest in Jerusalem, vision. In the midst of the storm at sea that would leave him shipwrecked on Malta, vision. Add to all these that Paul had spent three years in the desert receiving teaching directly from the risen Jesus Christ. And so if anybody could boast about spiritual things, it was Paul. But Paul, isn't he then boasting by mentioning these things? Well, William MacDonald writes and says, When boasting of weakness, the apostle didn't mind mentioning himself, but when boasting of visions of revelations of the Lord, he would not apply them directly to himself. He'd rather speak of the experience impersonally as if it occurred to some man he knew. He was not denying that he was the one who had the experience, but he was simply refusing to involve himself directly and personally. Uh, Paul was having his cake and eating it too, is what he was doing. And so he was appealing to these spiritual things that took place in his life, but not telling for sure that it was him, to establish that if anybody had room to boast, it was him, so be quiet. Uh, and so, you know, you just, uh, you know, the people that always want to one-up you, uh, sooner or later there's somebody who you, he just, you know, he has more than you. He's, he's, you know, so when Paul starts talking about visions, it's unlike anything that the Corinthians had been through. So verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I don't know, whether out of the body I don't know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Paul was this man in Christ. One thing this conveys is that you didn't see Paul or that he didn't want to be seen. You saw Jesus. He was in Jesus. Uh, not in a weird mystical sense, but you, you get the idea. You, you, when you see a Christian, you see a person that's in Jesus, saved in Jesus, saved by Jesus, uh, you know, trying to be like Jesus. But we want people to see the Lord, not ourselves. And so he was a man in Christ, hidden in Christ. Fourteen years earlier, he had been caught up to the third heaven. The Bible speaks of the atmospheric heavens, the stellar heavens, and the third heaven, which is the dwelling place of God. I know such a man, verse 3, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Paradise is used here as a synonym for the third heaven. Paul didn't know if he had died and gone to heaven or if he was simply transported there while still alive. Uh, there's at least one occasion recorded in the book of Acts where Paul was stoned and drug out of a town and left for dead. Uh, and so, you know, people argue about whether he was really dead or not. But uh, I think Paul may have been dead several times in his life, if you read his testimony of the various things that happened to him and the stonings and the lashings and the shipwrecks and all. Uh, but, uh, you know, so he said, look, I, I don't know if I actually died or if I just was, in, you know, was taken to heaven, but this is what took place. Not lawful to utter could mean that these visions and revelations were personal. They were not meant to boast to others about that. God didn't give them to Paul to say what a great Christian he was. 
He gave them to him to bolster him and to encourage him in his difficult ministry. After all, when Paul got saved, uh, he was told how many things he must suffer for the sake of the Lord. And now he's drawing from them now in order to show the boasters their arrogance. Paul was in Christ, humbled by amazing visions that he'd been having for at least 14 years. These guys were in their flesh, quick to draw attention away from Jesus to themselves. One of the characteristics of being a Corinthian Christian, it seems, was that you wanted all the attention on yourself as a spiritual individual. So verse 5, of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. By not outright owning that he was the man, it allowed him to use his experiences as an illustration without boasting. He could say, well, I know this guy. That's you, isn't it? Well, I'm not saying it's me. I'm just telling you about this experience. It's a real experience. It's your experience, isn't it? I'm not going to tell you because that would be foolish. I only want to boast in my weaknesses, but I am going to tell you about these visions if you'd just be quiet now, and I'll tell you. The loudest speaker in tongues, the most elaborate prophesier, the most exuberant Pentecostal worshiper, these were the fleshly standards that the Corinthians established for their fellowship. Paul was content to be seen as weak or not to be seen at all. Uh, He said, I don't want anyone to think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And so he didn't want any buildup. It's always hard to introduce a Christian, right? Because, or maybe you don't think it is, but I find it hard because I don't think you should really say anything about him. You know, you should, you, but we, we are in a culture where you say, well, now, now uh, we're going to, you know, introduce, uh, you know, so-and-so who has been on the mission field for such-and-such and had, you know, 15 million conversions and met several presidents and written 18 books and does all this. And you think, wow, this is a neat person. Paul would say, hey, just, I'm going to just walk up to the podium and start talking. I don't, really, I don't really care if people know who I am or not. And in a minute, we're going to see they're going to want to turn away and not listen to me, but the power of God's going to be on me. And, and so that, that's the idea. And so, you know, a lot of times we just say, hey, uh, it's time for so-and-so. He's a servant of the Lord. Give him a big welcome, you know. So I, I, that, I think, is a great, great introduction. Now's a good time to talk about Paul's appearance because he says he doesn't want to be seen. And if you look like this, you probably didn't want to be seen. There's a literary portrait of Paul in a second century writing called the Acts of Paul and Thecla, not a biblical writing, not anointed or inspired, but just a a fiction piece, but it gives a description of the Apostle Paul. We're not sure if it's accurate or not, but why wouldn't it be? Nobody seems to contest it. And so he's described there, as I quote, a man of middling size, his hair was scanty. That's so cute, isn't it? If you're going bald, say, well, my hair is scanty. Uh, With scanty hair, his legs were a little crooked and his knees were projecting. He had large eyes and his eyebrows met. He had a unibrow and his nose was somewhat long. I meditated on that for a while and I I thought he sounded a little like Dobby, the house elf in Harry Potter, (laughs) right? That's a little bit, Paul is here to share the gospel. And he had this thorn in the flesh. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. 
Thorn is the translation of a word used of a tent stake or a large stake upon which you could be impaled. And it's interesting just in passing to note that Paul worked with canvas to support his ministry many times. Mostly he would be making tents or repairing tents. And so throughout this narrative, he talks about a tent peg and then a tent. He's going to bring up tents again. There's probably a really cool devotional there if you want to search for it. Uh, and so in the flesh, important because it identifies this as a physical infirmity that could be seen. Infirmity that could be seen. So it's going to talk about the messenger of Satan to buffet him, but the, the problem he had was physical and could be seen. It wasn't this unseen demon. And as far as the messenger of Satan, it reminds us of Job in the Old Testament. Not that, you know, Job wasn't possessed, he wasn't oppressed directly, he didn't have demons bothering him. His friends turned out to be worse than demons. Uh, But, uh, you know, so this was just a thing where Satan thought, well, this will stumble Paul, and God knew that it would humble Paul. And so that's what's going on there. It's, It's like a test. Speculation about the thorn is mostly on one of the many ancient eye ailments on account of a weird thing that Paul wrote concerning the Christians in the regions of Galatia. He said, For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Would you agree with me that that's an odd thing to say? You loved me so much you would have plucked out your own eyes. Are there something wrong with your eyes, Paul? Well, he followed that up by saying, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. So Paul, when he's writing this, he didn't use a secretary on this letter. He wrote with his own hand and he said, I write in big letters now. Why would you do that? Because you can't see. You're having trouble with your eyes. And so he's the guy that is writing big. He's using a giant print King James Version Bible. Now, there were many chronic eye conditions in ancient times, so we don't, know. we don't know if it was an eye condition. We don't know which one it was, if it was, but it's the best candidate. Trachoma is one. From its initial description in antiquity until the late 1930s, there was no known cure for this eye disease. At one point, Egypt had it so bad that it was called the land of the blind because people were going blind from it. Now, when you study this, you see that these various eye conditions are lumped in with conjunctivitis, which immediately makes us think of pink eye. Now, I've had pink eye, uh, and it's annoying and, and all, but it's, it's not the end of the world, right? I mean, you, you, hardly anybody even notices it. Uh, and so, and it's easily treatable. And so you think, well, okay, so Paul had pink eye and he'd, he'd go up like Dobby and he'd have to Dobby his eye, you know, get it? See what I did there? And uh, anyway, uh, but now, uh, it was a huge deal. It was a huge deal. And uh, I don't normally do this. We're going to show you a couple of photos. If you're squeamish at all, close your eyes. It's the only warning I'm going to give you. The, now, I want you to think of the description of the Apostle Paul. You're in church at Corinth, and uh, the apostle's there, and you look up at the podium if they had one, and this is what was looking back at you. Okay, Noah, let's take a look. Sorry, it gets better. I don't even know what that is. This is the zombie trachoma. 
And my favorite, here comes my favorite. All right. Having to listen to a guy who had trachoma, you'd understand why they'd want to give him their eyes. And so I, I, you know, I just, I don't want to overplay this, but the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary of all time, this man that we revere so much, from our standards was a weird-looking guy whose eyes made you wince. And yet God said, perfect. Steve Rogers, you're, you're the man. Because if, if, if anything happens through your life, it is most obviously God that's doing it. Because in normal life, you couldn't get a job. And so it's pretty exciting to me. Uh, it's hard for me being as handsome as I am to, you know... To, <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. I had to sneak that in somewhere. So verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. I bet he did. But why only three? Well, turns out Jews prayed three times a day on a regular basis. I mean, they prayed other times too, but there were three official times of prayer. Daniel in his upper room, you remember, prayed three times a day and got him in trouble with the king. In the book of Acts, you find the apostles going to the temple at the three times of prayer. So Paul prayed for one, three day, or one day's three cycle and then received God's answer. The Lord doesn't heal so much in the church age as he did when Jesus was on the earth. He didn't heal so much in the Old Testament times as he did when Jesus was on the earth. Healing was a sign that the person doing the healing was the Messiah. And so there's a, a special uh, anointing, a special outpouring of healing during the time Jesus was offering the kingdom to Israel. God heals today. He still heals. And we should pray for healing unless we're directed not to. Uh, but, uh, and this is, this is the harsh truth, uh, most of the time, and this is your experience too unless you tell me otherwise, most of the time God does not heal. He chooses not to heal in the dispensation in which we're living. And it isn't because the church is failing or you don't have enough faith. It's because we don't live in that time. Back then, Jesus, I'm going to heal everybody so that it's clear that I'm the Messiah. Now God says, I'm going to leave you sick so that my, uh, you can be glorified uh, and glorify me. And, and so that's the, the thing. And we always think, oh man, if people were getting healed, people would get saved left and right. They didn't when Jesus was here. The religious authorities watched him raise Lazarus from the dead, and they said, hey guys, let's have a, let's have a little meeting here. We need to kill Jesus and Lazarus, because we just want to get back to normal here. We can't have all these resurrections. And so it's a very interesting uh, thing to think about. And so... Verse 9, he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God's answer was to remind Paul that his grace is sufficient. Now, the Lord doesn't say he will give Paul more grace. He reminded him that grace was already sufficient to meet every circumstance. He had sufficient grace. Now, let's touch upon the problem of pain for a minute because... Uh, you talk about this suffering, people say, well, there, I, I can't believe in a God who would allow suffering. Why doesn't God do something about it? Well, it was necessary for God to give our original parents, Adam and Eve, free will to choose to follow him or to reject him. 
C.S. Lewis observed, try to exclude the possibility of suffering which the existence of free wills involve, and you find that you've excluded life itself. We, we can't have human life as we know it without a free will to choose. Our parents chose poorly. The result is the fallen world in which we live, whose ruler is the devil. Why doesn't God do something? He has. In the garden, he promised to send his son to be our savior. He said the only way to solve this dilemma is for God to become a man and as the God-man die for the sins of humanity. Jesus was born. God in human flesh died in order that we might have eternal life believing in him. The Bible says it happened at the perfect time. That's because justifying sinners, declaring believing sinners righteous, is no simple task. It required God becoming a man, which required all of the history of the Old Testament leading up to Jesus Christ. It couldn't be done any quicker. It's not something that could be done overnight. You say, well, isn't God God? Yes, he is. But in order to end up with a free will being who will not sin, like God himself, this is the plan. And you remember that a thousand years is like one day to the Lord. It's only been a long time for us. Well, how about, you know, it's been a while since Jesus came, so what's he waiting for? There's a special word in the Bible called long-suffering. God's long-suffering. He's waiting for people to get saved. He could come at any time, as we tell you each week. If you're not a Christian here today, for example, I don't want to pick on you, but if you're not a Christian, one of the reasons that the Lord hasn't come yet to deal with all the evil in the world, the way he said he will in the book of the Revelation, is because he's waiting for you to get saved. He's not willing that you should perish eternally, separated from him in a place of conscious torment called the lake of fire. And as a Christian, even with all the suffering in my own life, in your own lives, and in the world, I can at least comprehend that. Because that, that suffering, that eternal suffering is, I don't even know what to say after that. And so, so that's what's going on in our world. God loves the world so much that he sent his only begotten son to die that men might not perish but have eternal life. No man comes to the Lord unless he is drawn by God. That's true. But on the cross, he does draw all men to himself. Whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. Now, let's be clear. He can save everyone, but those who refuse his offer of salvation who refuse to simply believe in him, remain in their sins and must, in the end, be consigned to eternal conscious punishment in the lake of fire. Now back into the text, the word rest is, a weird uh, translation would be tent upon, T-E-N-T. Uh, again, another reference to tents. What Paul is basically saying is, uh, Jesus abides in me. It's like him and I are in the same tent. And Paul will later in, uh, tell the Corinthians that our bodies are like temporary tents that we live in now until we get our resurrection body. And so it's just his way of poetically saying, Jesus and I are tent camping. Uh, this is my tent and he lives in me by the Spirit. Now, the Apostle John said of Jesus, he was full of grace. And so wherever Jesus was, grace was full. There was no more grace to be had. He didn't leave any grace in heaven. There wasn't a 55-gallon you know, drum full of grace or anything like that. Jesus was grace. And then he said in, verse, in Hebrews chapter 10, the spirit of grace is a name for the Holy Spirit. 
So if Jesus isn't there, but the Spirit is, he is also the Spirit of grace. And so again, you have sufficient grace. Because he is full of grace, wherever he is present, grace is full, it is sufficient. And the same is true of the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus told Paul his grace was sufficient, he wasn't talking about giving Paul an injection of super grace. He wasn't saying if you pray more, read more, go to some seminars, fast for a little while, etc., etc., I will give you more grace. Now, all of those things are good disciplines in the Christian life for you to grow in the Lord, but you cannot get more grace than you already have if Jesus is grace. You follow me? And he lives in you by the Spirit. And so he's talking about uh, Jesus living in his tent by the Spirit of God with sufficient grace in every circumstance and suffering. I don't always, I can't always wrap my head around that when things happen. You know, in ter- uh, you know it's, it seems to me that I don't have sufficient grace, right? Uh, it's just things that are overwhelming. And things are happening, maybe it's just as you get older, but things are happening that are just, they seem like it's just piling on, overwhelming. It's like you're not just sick, you're really sick, and then these other five things happen to you as well, and you think, how does anybody handle that? And, and you know, it, it's a challenge. But it's true. And it doesn't make it untrue that I can't fully understand it. God, God said to Paul, this thorn is good for you because otherwise you're going to become a boaster and you don't want that and of course I don't want that and, and, and you have the grace right now in order to deal with the situation. You don't need any more grace than I've already given you as my child. Alan Redpath writes, return to the battle no longer trusting in the false and insufficient human resources which so foolishly we had taken into the battle but now trusting in the limitless resources of our risen Lord. Verse 10, therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. There are hard truths to learn and severe mercies to be experienced in following the Lord Jesus Christ. Elizabeth Elliot, no stranger to suffering and loss, said this, our vision is so limited, we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protection from suffering. The love of God did not protect his own son. He will not necessarily protect us, not from anything that it takes to make us like his son. A lot of hammering and chiseling and purifying by fire will have to go into that process. You might remember the classic sci-fi series, Quantum Leap. Who remembers Quantum Leap? Talked a little bit about this New Year's Eve, or Christmas Eve, excuse me. Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the quantum accelerator and vanished. He found himself jumping into other people's bodies, facing mirror images that were not his own. And the idea is that it would be a drama each week as he would do something to change the trajectory of that life and improve that person's life. In episode 22, Sam leaps into a woman. Two men are attempting to abduct her and throw her into a van. He is helpless until Al, his trusty holographic sidekick, reminds him that he is trained in judo, karate, muay thai, and taekwondo. Once he is reminded that he has those skills, those resources, he easily dispatches both of the kidnappers, knocking them out and getting free. God the Holy Spirit doesn't need to leap into you. He is already in you 
it's up to you to remember that he is, to know that he is, to believe that he is. I came across this quote summarizing what we've expounded upon. God knows what each one of us is dealing with. He knows our pressures. He knows our conflicts. And he has made a provision for each and every one of them. That provision is himself in the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling us and empowering us to respond rightly. How do you respond rightly? I I struggle with that too. Probably starts with not responding wrongly. That's a good place to start, right? We, we know what the wrong responses are, desperation, uh, anger, bitterness, separate, you know, all the things that we would do in the flesh because of some trial that we have, some illness that we've been made aware of, or every, you know, that's that, you know, why me, God, kind of. So we know what not to do. As far as what to do, uh, you know, well, quit doing what you shouldn't do, and God will show you what you should do. And you, I need to believe, and you need to believe that, God, Jesus Christ, is my sufficiency, not more of his grace that's in a storeroom someplace, him personally, living in me by his spirit. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, uh, but I might end up being a trachoma-eyed Dobby-type creature. You never know. Uh, But, you know, if that's what God has for me, I know that he has a glorious, glorious future for me, right? And you, a new, shiny resurrection body that's either going to come out of the grave or be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, fit for eternity, ready to see your new home in heaven, serve with him in the millennial kingdom, go on into eternity. One author once said, who can mind the journey when the road leads home? The journey's going to be rough. It's fraught with disaster and tragedy and peril uh, for all of us. And, uh, you know, if if you're not going through, if you don't have a thorn in the flesh now, if you live long enough, you will. Uh, if you're not going through trials and troubles now, they're coming. You don't need to pray about it. Don't pray about it. Uh, the Lord, he'll handle it. Uh, but know that when they come, your, his grace is sufficient. Whether you can receive it immediately or not, it is. And, and so don't go seeking someone else or somewhere else. Just stick with Jesus and his spirit. Amen?